All right, well, we're coming back to Ephesians today, to chapter 2, and it's going to be exciting to dive into this and to look at the work of Christ. He really is doing great things all around the world. He's changing lives. Jesus still saves people. Sometimes we forget that. We look around and we think, man, things have gotten so crazy. Well, he still works in lives. He still changes lives, and not just in foreign lands. He does it in our nation as well. As we think about the work of Christ, there, there are two important questions, and these are the most important questions anyone could ever ask. And these are, who is God, or how I view God, and who am I? If we mess up one of those two questions, we're going to be having a whole lot of difficulty But if we can get those two things straight, a lot of things will make sense. Last week, we talked a lot about the first one. Who is God? We talked about the sufficiency of Christ that we saw revealed in Ephesians chapter 1. That he is Lord and Savior, that he's God, that everything is under his control, that the whole universe is under his authority, that he's sufficient for our eternity, for our present reality, and for our church body. He is sufficient. I asked you to take an opportunity to recalibrate a little bit, to get him in his rightful place. Several years ago, I spoke to a church in Colorado on Luke 10, 38 through 42, the famous story of Martha and Mary. And in that passage, I said, Martha had an anything but Jesus perspective, right? I don't want to get you know, blame her too much, but I mean, chores over Jesus, (laughs) right? And Mary had a nothing but Jesus perspective. I want us to recalibrate to that nothing but Jesus perspective. That's the foundation for where we have to go from here. And it's the first half of the book of Ephesians, right? Is that that Christ in us, right? The, The vertical relationship before the horizontal. In, in Revelation 2, 3 through 5, I mentioned this last week. Jesus himself says to the church in Ephesus, I know that you've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The Ephesians had gotten away from the most important thing. And Jesus himself called them back to that recalibration. Come back to your first love. Come back to your first love. That's where we were last week, the sufficiency of Christ and recalibrating to him. Now, based on that, I want to look at that second question. Who am I? Who are you in light of what Christ has done in you? Christ has done something special in each of your lives. He's done something very special, and we're going to get a chance to look at that. I want to tell you briefly the outline that we're going to be going through today. We're going to be talking about how Christ rescues sinners. This is an unbelievable reality. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. And just like you saw in the video this morning, he is doing that all across this globe, including in our town. I'll share another story about our town at the conclusion of this message. He also reconciles believers. He's the one that can bring two together into one. And we see in Ephesians 2 how he's done this with Jews and Gentiles and himself. But that same unity is possible for all believers today. 
we're also going to see how he realigns his church along himself. It's going to be an incredible time at looking at Jesus as completely sufficient, but seeing his work in our lives. So before jumping into chapter 2, I want to look a little bit at what Jesus has done. Because chapter 2 is going to focus on what he has done in our lives. But that's not the only place he's working. So I want to look a little bit at what some of Scripture says that he has done. And he has done so much. In John 1.3, we read, All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. He is the creator of all things. Colossians 1.16 says, Everything was created by him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. He is the creator. I was speaking with Austin, who is a member here at the church, uh, this past week. And we were witnessing to a Satanist. And this Satanist told us, creation is a lie and evolution is true. (laughs) And I said, no, evolution is a lie. You guys, I don't want to veer too far off on this topic, but I always want to share some apologetics whenever I talk to remind us that his word is true. Evolution is a lie. Everything on that spectrum that we've seen a million times is either fully ape or fully human. Nothing's truly transitionary. But let me tell you a few reasons that we know evolution is a lie. One, the transitionary, ev- uh, the transitionary evidence is lacking, both in the fossil record and the genetic record. Even famous evolutionists will admit that. Two, the mechanism by which it happens. Natural selection, working on gradual mutations over time, is insufficient. It won't work. I actually did a radio show on that yesterday, why natural selection does not prove evolution. Three, life does not come from non-life. That does not happen. If you've ever studied chemistry, as I know some of you have, you'll know there's a big jump between molecule and man. Even if we could get chemistry to form some RNA or DNA on its own, which we won't, it would be informationless. The existence of information is naturalistically inexplicable. And finally, so is the start of the universe. This didn't just get here on its own. This got here because Jesus Christ created it and put it here. He is the creator. That is the truth. Evolution is a lie. Jesus holds all things together. He doesn't just create it and walk away as a deist might say. He creates it and holds it all together. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things and by him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He sustains it all by his word and by his power. Jesus destroyed death. One of the greatest doubts that I ever faced in life, and there were many years where this bothered me and I would just struggle with this, was death and, and my own resurrection. I shared a little bit of Habermas's evidence for the resurrection last week, the truth is we can know with certainty that because he beat death, he can do it for me. And he promised me that in John 6.40. But listen to what Paul tells Timothy, who is in Ephesus when he receives this letter. He says in chapter 1, verse 10 of of, uh, 2 Timothy, Jesus has destroyed death. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? He's destroyed it. What an amazing God we serve. And he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
Jesus also demonstrated power over death by raising Jairus' daughter, the widow's son in Nain, and Lazarus. He himself conquered death, and he proved that he had the authority to do that for me and you as well. He also has power over nature, complete power. He turned the water into wine. He helped his disciples with a miraculous catch of fish on multiple occasions. He fed the 4,000, the 5,000, walked on water, withered the fig tree, calmed the storm, spoke to the wind and waves, and they obeyed him. Can you believe the authority of our Savior over everything? His works are amazing. My precious family several years ago and I were able to go to the Sea of Galilee. It was a wonderful experience. We were in Israel. And when we went, we couldn't get on a tour boat. And we, we ended up in Tiberias where we found a little uh, boat and wave runner company that wasn't catering to people that were there for the Holy Land experience. They were catering to people that were there for the kind of the, the water entertainment experience. So there was a little bit of a translation gap, but we asked if we could go out on the boat for a little bit of time on the Sea of Galilee. My whole life, my dad had said, I would love to go to the Sea of Galilee and just experience the peacefulness on that sea of what Jesus had done. So we get out there, and our boat driver, who didn't speak English, goes like that, at which point he cranked up the most obnoxious music I've ever heard in my life, that about every 30 seconds repeated, this is the best music in the world. <laughs> Definitely wasn't. And he began going fast and creating waves and then trying to jump his waves. And he kept going like this back to us. <laughs> so we experienced a little more of the storm than the peace on the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> but it was a special time. Jesus had power and showed power and has power over sickness and disease. He healed the blind, the deaf, the crippled, the paralyzed, the lepers. Total power over sickness and disease. Total power over spiritual forces, casting out demons. They obeyed every word he said. Jesus has all authority, and his works are incredible. And the same God that's doing these great things and has done these things in his word is doing great things like this throughout the world in lives every day as people come to know him as Savior and Lord. As we dive into Ephesians 2, I want to start with a little bit of introspection. As we talk about going from death to life, I want to ask you to join me in thinking about what that meant for you. You went from death to life. So it's easy to, to look at what we're studying here and think of it in kind of global perspectives, right? We've all gone from death to life. But I want to beg you to remember who you were before Jesus and to experience that in a very fresh new way, to be reminded of it this morning. I want to start by reading the first 10 verses together. We're going to have that on the slide. And this is uh, from the CSB. It says, And you... We're dead. Go ahead and read with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. Well, can we go back? 
<laughs> and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Okay? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Let's unpack that just a little bit this morning. Uh, what was our condition before Christ? That's where we start. It says here that we were spiritually dead. Right? We were spiritually dead. There's a lot to get from that. I think it's important. Uh, there are two different words for death in Greek, and I'm not a Greek expert. But the one here literally means corpse. This isn't the separation word, but the, the dead corpse word. Uh, we didn't really have anything to offer God. God didn't come to us because we are more special than the next guy. He loved all people. He, he came to us when we were dead, and he, and he offered us life. Uh, you know, I don't want to read too much into this, but I want to I look at something that might shed a little bit of light on, on this. There are two different camps on how we're made up. Uh, the dichotomists that think that there is a, an immaterial and a material side, and the trichotomists, the spirit, soul, and body. And I think there are verses that kind of hint at both, so I don't want to come down too clearly on one or the other. But there might be something here that we could get before we pass on to the next step. There are different passages like Mary's statement in Luke 1, and uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 that reference a spirit, a soul, and a body. And there is a whole lot of overlap between the spirit and soul in Scripture. It's it's maybe hard to, to draw a real clear line between the two, right? Um, so I don't want to add more clarity than Scripture gives us here. I want to keep it exactly the way it is. But we might learn a little bit from what some of these words mean. Uh, this, the word for spirit, pneuma, is the vital principle by which the body is animated. It's kind of the essence of who you are. You could look at it that way. And what we realize in Scripture is that when we trusted Christ, he made us alive. Even though we were spiritually dead, we were made alive. In fact, it says in Hebrews 12, 23, that Christ, the perfect judge, has made the spirits of righteous people perfect because of what he did for them and their belief in him. Okay? You could also look at the soul. Uh, the Greek there is suke, and it means the breath of life or the seat of the affections and the will and the desire, things like that. So maybe the spirit is the essence of who you are and the soul your feelings, your thoughts, your appetites, your desires. And uh, we see verses that kind of hint at this, like David saying, oh, my soul, <laughs> uh, don't, don't be discouraged. Put your hope in God, right? In Psalm 42 and other places, things like that. And then we see th this view of our bodies, our fleshly bodies, the Greek soma, and this body is uh, mortal. There's going to come a day when it dies, and there's a great promise in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Again, our resurrection is a promise that we can believe because of what Jesus did at the cross. So one way some people have said it is you are a spirit, you have a soul, you live in a body. 
That might be putting more clarity on these topics than there are, but here's what I want to, to draw from this, if there is something in those differentiations to draw. That our spirit was dead but made alive in Christ. We are continuing to walk out that on a daily basis in our heart and our souls and our desires and our ambitions and our sense of who we are. And someday that's going to come to completion when we die and go to be with him in heaven. Uh, here's the bottom line, and there's no confusion on this. In Christ, you have been justified through faith. One way that, that that has been stated is that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. That was done the moment we put our faith and trust in Christ. That is settled. That is settled. And Colossians, the record that was against us was nailed to the cross. It's a done deal. In Christ, we are being sanctified. Every day that process is working itself out in our lives as we learn to, to trust him. We are being saved from the power of sin, it's been said. That's an ongoing process. And in Christ, the day is coming when we will be glorified, right? When we will be saved from the presence of sin. Isn't that amazing? So we were dead, but he's made us alive. And he's continuing to do this work in our lives. Uh, we were dead, but we weren't just dead. It says in verse 2 that we were worldly. We weren't any different than everything else we, we see out there. I, I talked to this young uh, Satanist on campus last week. And uh, he said, well, what about this? And what about those people and those people and those people? And I said, I am no better than any of them. <laughs> I am no better than any of them. I've simply trusted Jesus and he's forgiven me. I can't point the, the finger. I was worldly just like them, maybe in different ways, but just as worldly in my own sin. We were under Satan's power, we're told. We were controlled by our carnal desires and thoughts. Right? And we were deserving of God's wrath. But... Christ didn't leave us there. That was our condition. But Christ's mission was to seek and to save the lost. And this is exciting. In fact, once I shared with a, with a non-Christian the gospel, and I got through this sin part. And he said, if that's true, why are you Christians always so happy? <laughs> I said, well, it's because there's more to the story. It doesn't end there. See, God saved you, and he made you alive, we read in verse 5. He did this because of his mercy, the wrath that we were deserving, that it just told us about in this passage, he put that aside and instead showed us mercy. He didn't punish us like we deserved. He did this because of his love for us. He loves each and every one of you. He loves your neighbors. He loves your coworkers. He loves your relatives. He loves the people that you drive by that don't look very lovable. He loves them just like he loves us. And he did this work in our lives because of his grace, right? His grace is what saves us, and our faith is what latches onto that grace. David, thank you for defining grace for us today and bringing us back to this truth that we don't deserve this. This isn't something that we get because we deserve it. This is something that God has given as a free gift to us. Something that we don't deserve, but that we can say, I trust you, I receive your free gift. I accept it. I believe that you can give to me what you've promised to give to me. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Right? My faith simply says, I receive it. I receive your grace, and I trust that it's sufficient for me. Faith is not 
what's been called uh, believing what you know ain't so. Remember that Mark Twain quote? (laughs) That's not the faith of the Bible. That might be the faith of a lot of false religions. It is not the faith of Christianity. Our faith is a confidence based on the unchanging truth of who God is and and what his word says. This is something that we can know with certainty and we can trust him completely because of it. That doesn't mean that you won't experience doubt sometimes. I talked to a young man last week that's been dealing with years and years of years of incredible doubt. He said, uh, last week I prayed for the first time in, in a long time. You know what? We see examples of that throughout scripture. I want to read to you an incredible quote by Timothy Keller. He says, imagine you're on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and seems more than strong enough. How can it save you? If you are certain the branch can support you, but you don't reach out and grab it, you are lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you still reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. And here's the summary. He says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Our salvation doesn't come from us or our ability to imagine it or hold on to it. It is something that we receive as we just say yes to a God who is absolutely sufficient to give it. You guys, our condition was we were dead. Christ's mission was to make us alive, and he's done that. If you've trusted in him as Savior and Lord, he has done that in your life. He has made you alive, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But it doesn't end there, right? There is a great commission. God wants everyone to see what he's done in our lives, we read in verses 6 through 7 there. This is on display for the universe. He doesn't want this to be missed. He doesn't want people to forget what he's done. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He wants the work that he's done in your life to be on display. He wants people to see it. You guys, in John 3, 16, we're told that God so loved the world, right, that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would be saved. In John 12, 32 through 33, we see Jesus himself saying that if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And John says in verse 33, he said this concerning the manner of death by which he would die, being lifted up on a cross. He is working in every person's heart. I believe that with everything in me. I've seen it. I've seen it time and time again. I've had people call me and say I had a dream last night that I needed to get right with God. You would not believe the stories, and you have many like that yourselves. God is working in every heart. I'm convinced of that. In 1 Timothy 2.4, we read that that he wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of him. In 2 Peter 3.9, we read he doesn't want any to perish but to come to repentance. He he died for the sins of the whole world, and he desires that the whole world would see the good work that he's done in and through each of you. And I believe he is doing that. I believe there are people outside of our church that are looking at us, that are looking at you individually and seeing a changed life, that are looking at our church and seeing what God is doing here. We've been raised up and seated with him positionally in the heavenly places, 
We are his masterpieces, we're told in this passage in verse 10. We believed in him. We put our faith in him and received his grace. And he made us his masterpieces for good works. He desires to work through us now. Uh, Being his masterpiece is a very, very big deal, right? And now he desires to work through us. We're called in Ephesians to live a life worthy of our calling, to imitate God as dearly loved children, and to make the most of every opportunity through the Holy Spirit's power. He desires to show himself through us to those around us. God really changed these Ephesians. He did this. I want to show you a couple slides here that are going to show you a little bit about how this happened in the Ephesians. So here's a picture of the Library of Celsus. That actually didn't exist when Paul traveled to Ephesus. It was built about 60 years after Paul traveled to Ephesus. But it was the third biggest library in all of antiquity. That's a big deal. The third biggest library, and it housed between 10 and 20,000 scrolls. It shows you a little bit about how important scrolls were in the Ephesian culture. Now, we read in Acts 19 that the believers there that had converted to Christ took uh, their scrolls, the ones that had had a history with sorcery, they took their scrolls and publicly burned these things. And it tells us the value is about 50 thousand drachmas. That's a lot of money. One was about a day's wages according to the Roman soldier's day wage. And if you do the math on that, that's roughly about a million dollars in today's currency. That's a lot of money. The Ephesian believers had been radically saved. They'd been taken from death to life, and now that was on display for all of Ephesus. Here we are. We're ready to walk away from a million dollars because of Jesus. They were on full display. And then check out this next slide. The, the workers there went into a riot because people were coming to Christ and they were rejecting the false cult of Artemis. And the whole industry of the Artemis artifacts was imploding. Okay? It was absolutely going to pieces. Now, I, I'm from Colorado, and as you know, uh, they legalized marijuana uh, several years back. It's disgusting. It's horrible. Imagine if the testimony of believers in Colorado got the marijuana industry angry at them because so many people were coming to Christ that the industry was falling apart. Isn't that amazing? That's what was happening in Ephesus. Changed lives were being seen by the society and by the culture. And that's, I believe, what God wants to do through us. And it's all because of his accomplished work that this has happened in our lives. It's because of his accomplished work that we've been rescued, saved, and made alive in him. And it's because of him in us that the world can see this change working out of our lives. Remember, this has happened in your life, but it doesn't end there. He reconciles believers. We're told in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 that he reconciles believers. Let's read that together really quickly. It says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, 
you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He's done something amazing. Uh, We were Gentiles and separate, most of us in this room, right? Uh, We were excluded. We were all separate, whether Jew or Gentile. But there might be some in here that are Jewish, uh, brothers and sisters. We were Gentiles and separate. We were excluded from Christ. We were godless and we were hopeless. We had no hope in this world. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember what it was like to have fear and hopelessness? Well, that's in your past. Because of him, he has come and done something in your life and he has made you an insider. You were an outsider. He's now made you an insider. We have been brought near by his blood, we're told. We were included in him when we believed, we were told last chapter in chapter one. We have been reconciled with him, but not just with him. We've been reconciled with each other. God did this with Jews and Gentiles who had believed And the truth is that he does it today with every believer. I've gone across the globe and seen believers of many different backgrounds embracing each other and loving each other. One of the most precious images in my mind was a a house church in Nepal many years ago where people from all different castes were hugging each other and loving each other in the Lord. They had been brought together in him and experienced reconciliation together because of what Christ had done in their life. Uh, We have been given peace, we're told, and we've been given access to the Father through Jesus and in his spirit. The Jew and the Gentile have been brought together. And In fact, look at this this, uh, picture that Paul might be referencing here of Herod's temple. There was a dividing wall between the Gentiles and where the Jews could go. And there's a good chance Paul is referring to this here because he's in prison in Rome going back to his time in Jerusalem where the Jews from Asia, i.e. Ephesus, they accused him of bringing an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple. They were referring to Trophimus who was from Ephesus. (laughs) So the same people that in Acts 19 were causing trouble, (laughs) apparently they followed him to Jerusalem and caused some more trouble tried to incite some riots. Now he's in prison because of that dividing wall right there, because of their accusation of what he had done. And he looks at that dividing wall, and he says, it's gone. There's nothing dividing us as believers. We're one in Christ. Now here's the promise. That's true for Jew and Gentile, but it's also true for each of us at Hoffmantown today. We are one in him, precious brothers and sisters. We have a unity that is unfathomable, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of our precious Savior and the fact that he destroyed the dividing wall. Because of his accomplished work, we can be reconciled to him and one another. And that's something that's very, very special. Let's wrap up Ephesians 2, reading verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling 
in the Spirit. Church, he's realigning us according to himself. And when we get out of alignment, and we all do every day, he brings us back in, in his mercy, in his grace, and in his love. He brings us back in alignment with himself. See, we are being built together into his household. We're members of that household because of what he's done for us. We are being built together into a holy temple with him as the cornerstone. Last week I read from 1 Peter 2 where it says we're like living stones being aligned with him. We see a picture of that here. It doesn't call us living stones, but it tells us the same thing. We are being built together in him. And in chapter 4, it says clearly, Jesus is the one that is building his body and unifying his body. This is his work that he is doing in our lives. We get to join him in the unity that he has with the Father. That was his prayer for us in John 17, 21. And it's a reality that we can experience today as a church because of him and him alone. He is our foundation, and we're aligned with him. Paul also talks here about the apostles and the prophets. I don't have time to dive too deeply into this, but I wanted to let you know that Scripture is full of fulfilled prophecy. It's amazing. We know that his word is true for so many reasons, but fulfilled prophecy is one that I love. I love the fact that Daniel prophesied about 500 years of of upcoming history and who would rule the earth, or that Isaiah told us by name that Cyrus of Persia was going to conquer the earth, and foretold that by name. I mean, this is mind-boggling. I love the fact that Daniel told us the exact time that the Messiah would come to pay for our sins. We could go on and on, but we can know that his word, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that we have right here in his word is sufficient. And aligned with him as the chief cornerstone, we have all that we need to grow as a church and to all that he has for us. Because of Christ's accomplished work, we can be realigned with him. I want to bring this home to you, like I said at the beginning. Some of you don't know Jesus. That's a reality. Well, the Bible says that before Christ, we are sinners that are separated from a perfect God and that we're deserving of his wrath. And it's talking there about an eternal separation from him and what the Bible calls hell. That is a reality, not because I imagined it, but because his word says it. And the Bible says that there's no way to get out of that reality on my own. I simply need to trust in him as Savior and Lord. The Bible is very clear, though, that if I believe in him, I will be rescued and saved from that. And I'll be guaranteed a life of meaning and significance on this planet. doesn't mean that there won't be problems, but it means that I'll be walking with him and experiencing him through my life and an eternity with him in heaven. Right now, I want to ask you, if you've never taken that step to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I want to give you an opportunity to agree with me in prayer right now. I wouldn't want you to leave this place without that step. So why doesn't everybody close their eyes with me? And if you're saying today, I need to take this step, just agree with me right now in prayer. Uh, You could tell the Lord something like this. You could say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life and eternal life. Today I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. Today I ask you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. If that's you, I'm going to ask you, don't leave this place without talking to somebody here and letting them know. 
because he will continue what just started as you believed in him. That prayer didn't save you, but believing in him allowed you to receive his grace. So if that was you today, please share that with someone. If that wasn't you, if you've already taken that step, I have some homework for you. And I want you to really take this home and and wrestle with it with the Lord. Today in the compass here, you're going to see some questions under application. This is a real simple way for you to write down with your own hand what God has done in your life. What three words describe who you are apart from Christ? As we've gotten the surveys back, a lot of people have said, I would like training on evangelism or on doing my testimony. Here's a start. Come to the mission conference and you'll get some more training on this. But I want to ask you this week to take this home. If you don't have one, grab one on your way out. Pull it out in your quiet time. And start to write down who you were before Christ, apart from Christ. Even if you grew up in the church, you probably have a good idea who you are apart from Christ. Write down how you came to believe in him as Savior and Lord. When did that happen? How did that happen? And then take a minute to write down what has happened in your life because of that. Um, Take that, reflect on it, consider where your hope is today going forward. Is your hope in circumstances changing or is it in what Jesus has done in your life and who he is? Because that'll never change. Uh, Before I uh, close this in prayer, I'm going to tell you my testimony. Uh, And it's going to take about one minute because that's about all we have. (laughs) There was a time in my life when fear, sadness, and doubt really consumed me. I was very young and I'd heard many times that God loved me and that he had died for my sins and that by believing in him, I could be forgiven. Uh, One day, it finally clicked, and I made that decision, and he radically changed me. He turned my fear into boldness. He turned my sadness into true joy, and he turned my doubt into confidence that he is who he says he is, and that I can trust every word he tells me in his word. That's what he's done in my life, and I know he's done things like that in each of your lives. Take some time this week to, to... come back to what we learned this morning and ask the Lord to remind you of what he's done in your life. And uh, maybe even share that with someone. There are a lot of people that have not experienced this. And I'm pretty sure that they would be very excited to hear that there is a real God that can really do that in their lives. Uh, That happened to us this week. I promised you I'd share a story in the conclusion. Um, There's a Muslim friend that we love dearly that many of you in here have prayed for. And uh, on um, Thursday night, on Thursday night at our table, he held hands with us and he prayed to put his trust in Christ. This is real. This stuff works, okay? God works in our lives. He's done it for millennia and he is not stopping today. So in conclusion... He's sufficient, we learned last week. He's working, we learned this week. Next week, we're going to dive deep into chapter 3 in the gospel of Christ that this whole world desperately needs to hear. Uh, Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for this precious group of believers, this, this church that 
has been such a blessing to me and my family. I thank you for the work that you've done in each of our lives. I thank you for the truth of your gospel, the fact that we didn't deserve any of this, but you loved us and you saved us. Jesus, we love you. We give you this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen.